Hello and welcome to Explorify Canada podcast. Join us as we sit with other Canadians at the roundtable to discuss and sometimes argue about financial independence in Canada. So today we're going to have a little discussion about the 4% rule. It's a common topic that many of you have probably heard of in the FI and FIRE community. And I think there's a lot of questions that surround the 4% rule. There may be some misunderstanding of how it's uh, how you use it to calculate your retirement withdrawals, maybe how you implement it. I think these are all questions and especially applicable towards Canadians. Do you plan to use it? Will it work for you? Are these studies that have been done reliable? Can we trust the data? What should we know about the 4% rule? And what can we learn about it? There's lots of questions. Let's see if we can answer a few of them. What do you think, Chrissy? Yeah, let's give it a try. So I did quite a bit of research for this, and uh, there are some differing opinions, but they're all generally pointed in the same direction. So uh, let's dig in. No, sounds good. But before we begin, um, Chrissy, do you think you should give like a tiny little uh, just blurb about what is the 4% rule, like like that it's based on the Trinity study, just so I, I think a lot of people have heard it, but they've never actually like looked at the data. Uh, do you want to just give like a quick few sentences on that? Sure, I'll, I'll give it a shot. The 4% rule is based on uh, what Ryan mentioned, which is the Trinity study. It was a study done at a university in the States where they found that if you have, I believe, a 50-50 portfolio of stocks and bonds, if you only withdraw 4% per year, it will sustain itself, I believe, over 30 years a 30 year retirement. So it, for instance, if you have a annual spending of $40,000, you should be able to sustain that on a $1 million portfolio because $40,000 is 44% of a million. So that is in a nutshell what the 4% rule is. No, that's awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, it has a uh, success rate of 96% of all the different time periods they went to. And if you lowered it to, I believe it was 3.5, it had a 98% success rate. Mm-hmm. And then if you lower it further to 3%, it's virtually guaranteed that you won't run out of money. So I think then we should talk about some of the uh, assumptions it makes. So I know that it's based on the US stock market. Like this is this is considering U.S. Uh, I believe a total U.S. stock market index and uh, bonds, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, generally that's what the studies are based on, and uh, of course it's based on uh, historical rates of return. So there's no guarantee that we'll see that in the future. And in fact, John Bogle did not believe that it was sustainable moving ahead. He he feels that. Uh, that returns will be lower going forward because we've we've had historically high returns, uh, I think, over the last few decades. So there, there's a lot of talk. No one's really sure what's coming. So it's, it's good to talk about it and uh, start planning ahead. Yeah, he talks about uh, reversion to the mean, doesn't he, when he, he says that we've had a high mm-hmm. returns over the, the decades. So it's reasonable to expect that they won't be as good going forward. Exactly. So I, I think it's good to dig into the various experts' opinions and try to pick out what what they're saying in common and and sort of decide for ourselves what it, what will fit into our own situations. Yeah, so I agree with you there. I'm just going to throw another little data point in just so that we're clear is that the study uses a large time period, but it takes 30-year blocks out of uh, basically starting, well, some of the studies started in 1900, some of them actually started a little bit earlier than that, but they just said if you started in each year moving forward for a 30-year time period, they analyzed the likelihood the withdrawal rate would be would work for you. Mm-hmm. So just to throw that into context, that's how they've done the study. Mm-hmm. And so one of the other wrinkles that a lot of people in the FIRE community are talking about is that a lot of people who retire early, who reach FI at a young age, will need the portfolio to last a lot longer than 30 years, maybe even 65 years or more. So that is something that obviously has not been studied. And uh, that is sort of this curveball that we we have to kind of guess and make our own predictions about. 
a lot of people, money, Mr. Money Mustache included, are very optimistic and feel that there is little difference between a 30 or a 65 year retirement. But again, there aren't any studies on that, so it's hard to say. Well, does the 4% rule assume that you draw your last 4% at you know, 29.99 years and that's it? Your portfolio is empty? Is that what the study says? No. The study says that you'll still be able to withdraw your 4% after 30 years. So your portfolio is not empty. I agree. I mean, I I tend to be an optimist. (laughs) (laughs) I tend to be be in the Mr. Money mustache camp where I I think it'll, he believes 4% is conservative. He, he thinks that, you know, you're, be, you're already being safe by withdrawing 4%. And I don't think I'm quite that optimistic, but I lean more towards that than I do on that. It's it's a hor- horrendous rule and it should be more like a 3% rule. Well, the problem I have too is that this has been a study that they've used for traditional retirement timeframes, and that's fine. And it's been adopted largely by the community more as just a benchmark to say that when you reach some arbitrary number, like 1 million or 1.2 or whatever it is, you know, we, we talk a lot about tracking our spending and figuring out what our burn rate is and what our annual cost of living is. And that's fantastic. I think we need to do that. But I think it's a little arbitrary to say, today my living cost is $48,000 or 40000 Ergo, once I hit 1 million, I'm fire. Mm-hmm. I think it just, it misses so many nuances. Exactly. Like, are you going to work after you hit your number, which most of us will? And are are you going to be able to be flexible if the stock market crashes, which most of us can be? So, yeah, there there are a lot of safeguards built into most of our plans. So I I don't think it's a hard and fast rule. I I agree. Yeah, I mean, a lot of us are going to, well, it's inevitable that you have, if you have a large portfolio of investments, that it will be spinning off a certain amount of dividends every year. So you know you may not necessarily have to touch 4% of your capital to, to generate that 4% income for the year. Exactly. That's true. So there, there are lots of ways that you can uh, make up for the 4% and, and not have to endanger your portfolio to, to make that happen. Right. And as Canadians too, we also need to recognize that once you hit 65 or maybe it's 55, whether you have a, a government pension, Ryan, you've, you're going to have pension. I personally don't. I'm a contractor. But a lot of people end up with some form of other income that they've worked for for their life. We, we're all entitled to our CPP. There's OAS, depending on if that gets clawed mm-hmm. back. So there's a lot of factors. And I think this is where many of us, and I'm guilty of it myself, of, of maybe not sitting down with the right planner, not somebody to sell me investment, but somebody to plan and kind of highlight all these things that we need to take into account. You know, if, if my 30-year retirement with a 4% rule starts at 40, once I hit 70, that's okay because there's going to be other streams of income that I didn't take into account when I was 40. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think a lot of us in the fire community, we just leave those additional sources of income as bonus. So, you know, we we don't count them as part of our number, but they will also help sustain our portfolio as we reach the older years. Can I just interject here? Okay, maybe I'm young and ignorant, but to be honest, CPP, like I really don't care about it at all. (laughs) It's not something I really factor in. I guess um, you could see it as a bonus or or, uh, to Money Mechanic's point that, it is something that is overlooked, but I'm planning on my finances for today and I don't want to have to wait till I'm 65 or 67 or who knows what they're going to move the timeline to um, because the pensions, you know, by and large are unsustainable. So I, I just, I don't factor it in whatsoever. I just pretend it doesn't exist. And I think a lot of, I think, I think I, I think like a lot of Canadians who are pursuing fire, but again, I come from a vantage point of in my 20s. So and and I will be hitting fire in my 30s, probably within, I'd say, like two year time frame. So it, it's it's never been about, you know, holding out and waiting for the for the government to come and lend me a hand. I don't ever really plan on needing it. Yeah, I, I think most of us in the fire community feel the same way. 
in Canada and the U.S. because I, I feel our um, government retirement income is is very similar in that none of us feel it's all that reliable and it, it's not all that much anyway. So it's not going to make a huge difference either way, whether you receive it or not. And so I think that kind of brings us back then full circle to the 4% rule. So if we are going to be retiring much earlier than what the CPP implies, then how do we as Canadians using a Canadian currency factor the Trinity study, which is based in the US with US tax codes with US dollars? Yeah, good question. We can assume that inflation is built in because they've built that into the study, which I think we can, you know, we're going to, the problem is we're going to sit here and, and come up with a lot of assumptions, but that's what you have to do if you're trying to, you know, forecast and make a plan for the future. You have to make some educated assumptions. And let's say that inflation is built in because they built it into the study and that's fine. One of the problems I have is, is the whole assumption that's a 50-50 stock bond portfolio. That's not how I would plan it. Mm-hmm. Right. So some of the articles I've pulled up, they and we'll list them in the show notes, they mentioned that there's some interesting facts. But generally, the, the more equity you have in your portfolio, the more likely the 4% rule is to to work and not fail. But uh, interestingly, one of the articles I looked at said that uh, 75% equities seem to be slightly more safe than 100% equities. So that there are some nuances in there that, you know, they're, they're really hard to predict in each of our situations, but it, it's good to know just to keep in the back of your mind that there is sort of this range of success rates. Hmm. I'm trying to think now because like, I, 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 I can understand that different Canadians will have different risk tolerance. And so not everybody's going to want to be 100% equities, which I think is becoming the very mainstream focus in the fire community um, is to have a essentially zero bond allocation. But I would I would assume that if you're going to use the 4% rule as a rule of thumb, which is how I'm doing it, that your risk tolerance, if even if it is, you know, 60, 40, uh, 40 being to bonds, it's not the end of the world. I mean, that's what uh, millennial revolution does. Though they run a lot of 60, 40? They run 60, 40. They also use a financial advisor or planner to do that as well. Like they have like their own like Ed Rempel kind of thing to do it. Where did I find, I'm going to, of course, I'll, I'll, I always struggle with this is trying to find the exact line in the article that I want to use, but I did, re- did read somewhere that they talked about the least uh, or the lowest six re- success rates were when the time period started in a very low interest rate environment. Hmm. See if I can come up with that again. But it's interesting to note because we are right now in that period of low interest rate. Yeah. So does that tie into sequence of return risk or is it unrelated to that? I don't think, well, no, sequence of return risk is, for me, the way I understand it is the fluctuations, the volatility of the stock side of it, your equity side of your portfolio, Mm -hmm. right? You know, your bond Mm -hmm. portion is your quote unquote fixed income, which is largely to do with what the what the interest rate is set at. So when you when you're in a low interest rate environment, your bonds are yielding a lot less. Hmm. And d- does that have an effect on people whose portfolios are heavily in equities? Does that have an effect on them as well? Not for the not of course not for the fixed income portion, but you know right now we've been in a bull market mm-hmm. for equities, which has been fantastic. And a lot of people talk about how there may be failures in the fire movement when this bull market ends, because every, you know, for the last 10 years, uh, the whole movement has grown in, in this environment. What happens next type thing, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. It's a big question. <laughs> you really won't know. Yeah. And this, this market just keeps going. I, I don't know. I, I keep thinking it's going to we all think it's going to slow down at some point or crash and it just keeps going. Yeah. One thing that they don't talk about in the 4% rule is, is tax. Do you guys notice that? That's a discussion that's missing. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. Cause we have obviously in Canada, the TFSA and RRSP and you know, if you're generating 4% of a million dollar portfolio, well, chances are your million dollars 
isn't all tax sheltered. And, you know, I've read it in different ways. There's buckets, right? You have this bucket, that bucket, or, you know, I think Mr. Manamessas has uh, a strategy of how his money is allocated and where he starts withdrawing and, and what next. But I guess the point I'm making overall is if you want to withdraw 4% of your portfolio, how much is it going to be? How much of that is taxable? How much of that is tax free? And again, now you step into a whole nother thing. Well, that money in your TFSA that you're pulling is going to last you a lot longer or go a lot further because it's not being taxed. Well, I think a good strategy, what our plan is, is to leave the TFSA for last, maybe draw down some of the RSPs when you're in, when you first hit FI and your income is low, try to draw down the RSPs so that you don't have this huge looming tax bill at the end. And even if it's to move it into taxable investments so that uh, you deregister them and pay the tax when you're in a lower tax bracket. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's probably the best way to do it as well is to, if we were talking like ultimate drawdown strategy is to, yeah, leave the TFSA for last. That's by far your best, most sexy account in the world. There's nothing better than a TFSA. There really isn't. So Mm -hmm. you obviously want that to be the powerhouse for your retirement planning. Um, and divest it, you know, very wisely. So I can say that for my wife and I as well, we do plan on drawing from our RSPs. And basically, we'll just do that every uh, January or February and 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 pull that money and, and sink it pretty much back into the TFSA. And then if we want, we can either begin drawing money from the TFSA, like the dividends from that, or we can just use our taxable accounts. But that kind of like technical application is is going to be very dependent on the person you're talking to you know like the the size of your rsp or lira might ultimately influence those those decisions not to mention if you have a if you do have a work pension and you're firing later in your life um you know like 55 or something like that what i would like to talk about is is if we are if, if there's a canadian out there right now is kind of sitting down with a pen and paper and they're saying okay if i'm going to use the four percent rule how could I possibly use it knowing that it's not exactly applicable to Canada? So what what is the rule of thumb? And I'll, I'll start with my own. My rule of thumb is to just, once I hit 25 times my expenses, which is, you know, the 4% and uh, the fire kind of threshold, I plan on just not stopping working necessarily. Maybe I'll quit my main job. Maybe I'll focus on other avenues of my life, but I don't plan on being unproductive and making $0 for the rest of my life. I plan on having some sort of income, whether it be the gig economy, or it could be meaningful work uh, that I choose to, or it could be five years down the road, and then I'll begin working again. It's very hard to crystal ball it all, my own personal life and for the 4% rule, just in the data uh, scheme of things. Our approach is going to be similar to yours. We, I don't think my husband plans to quit working immediately as soon as we hit our number. Uh, he still loves his job and he can see himself being there for quite a few more years. So it's, it's not like we'll drop to zero income as soon as we hit our numbers. So the plan is to continue working or earning income in other ways so that we can continue to build a cushion. And also there is the plan for us to, if we want to continue hosting students and even ramp that up to uh, continue to sustain us. And it might even allow us to, to withdraw at a lower rate, maybe 3% to uh, sustain us for the first I don't know, 10, 15 years, whatever we feel comfortable with. But the main point is there are a lot of options for us to cushion the 4% so that it's, at least in the early years, is not the full 4% that we're withdrawing, which gives our portfolio a much higher chance of sustainability. So I think what I'm hearing, the underlying theory here is that we're using the 4% rule, or as you mentioned, right, the 25 times your annual expenses as I mentioned earlier, as, as a benchmark, we use this in the FI community as the arbitrary number we choose to be able to say, we are FI, or totally. I have reached my own personal number, which is FI. And that can, it'll, it'll vary for everybody, right? But I think that's the nice part about this rule is it gives you the opportunity to use the math to choose your number. 
I agree. I, I think you're right. It's it's this benchmark that you reach, but I don't think any of us would say, I've hit my number, that's it. <laughs> you know, I'm mm-hmm. not earning any more income ever. Uh, I think most of us agree that we're not 100% comfortable with that. We want to have a little bit of a safety margin built in there, whether it's by continuing to earn income or by saving a little more or whatever it is, we, there are multiple options to to get us to a safer zone of withdrawal rate. Yeah, I mean, how many times how many times we read in mainstream media the the complete bashing of the whole fire movement because they've taken it taken it as such a literal meaning, saying, "Oh, well, yeah. these people in their twenties figure that once they hit their twenty five times, they can just stop working and they're going to do nothing for the rest of their lives." How many times have you read that? It's so frustrating because that's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> No, no, it's not. I mean, there's a small contingent of, it seems like younger fire seekers who, who will do the lean fire thing where, and they'll hit their number and it's, it's just barely hitting their number and, (laughs) and they will withdraw from the workforce. And, but the thing is they're young and they do have options to go back to work and be productive. So, you know, even in those situations, I feel like it's not as stupid as mainstream media makes it out to be. What I'm hearing is the millennials are to blame. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I love the millennials. They've, they've grown on me, I have to say. <laughs> and we love you too. It's, Chrissy, it sounds like you just fired like a shot across the millennial bow of the boat there and somebody got a little offended. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Tis but a stretch. <laughs> I'm in the in between. Don't worry, we're going to have a non-millennial uh, Explore FI show one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> we Not will. Really. I'll supply the ginger ale. <laughs> the ginger ale. There's an interesting article that I, I sent to the two of you also from Michael Kitsis about uh, the upside potential of the sequence of return risk in that there is, he says here, at a 4% initial withdrawal rate, the odds of nearly depleting the portfolio are equal to the odds of growing it by more than 800%. So I, I found that fascinating. And it's something that we hardly talk about in the fire community. What do you guys think about it? Yeah, that's a great point. Like I'm, I'm looking at that article that you just mentioned too, and he throws in there as well. He says, while sequence of return risk can cut both ways to the downside and the upside, the irony is that due to the compounding nature of wealth, the reality is that when the sequence is good, it can actually produce exponentially more wealth to the upside than the bad scenarios produced mm-hmm. to the downside. Exactly. It's so interesting. And and he's right. I mean, there's just as good of a chance of us like blowing our number out of the water very easily. My personal opinion is to think of I don't think of it as a withdrawal rate, how much I'm going to be able to withdraw from my portfolio. I like to look at it from the other side of the coin where I'm going, how much is my, how much do I anticipate or expect my annual cost to be? And that sort of gives me a bit better trajectory rather than having an arbitrary number and saying, okay, I'll be able to withdraw from that. More along the lines is how much runway do I have with my current savings, right? And a lot of people... I've, I was listening to a podcast yesterday and I thought it was great. He decided to become an entrepreneur when he had, I can't remember what it was. It was a, a few years of runway ahead of him. So instead of being, you know, fire per se, he said, I've, I know how much it costs me each day and I'm going to take, because I have that money set aside, I'm going to take that time to, you know, do what I want to do. So I kind of looking at, for me, I'm looking at it from that point of view. And like you mentioned, Brian, you're going to continue to be productive and sometimes it, you may not earn money for a year, but eventually I think we're all we're all going to be – we're all able to earn a little bit to supplement it. Yeah, I think if you have – I think if you're predisposed to the fighter movement and you're interested in saving a redonkulous amount of money and living frugally and applying all these hacks that you can find from so many blogs and podcasts out there, I don't think you'll be able to help but make money after you've hit your fire number. I just don't think it's possible for you to just sit down and say, I'm done, I'm going to watch Netflix. And just hopefully everything pans out. It just doesn't make sense to me. So while there is a lot of math and, you know, I, I, I look at these sites and I really just think they're kind of like data nerds, you know, like Big Earn and that kind of thing. Like I, I, I appreciate 
the math and science that goes into your articles dissecting the the Trinity study, but it really only applies to the person who's never going to make another dollar in their life. And I just don't think that's going to be anybody who's ballsy enough to go after the fire movement and to apply these essentially life philosophy and these set of like ethics essentially to your spending and how you how you perceive money and how you want to live your life in the world. I think it's just the the opposite. And that's why I don't take the 4% rule all that seriously. I don't plan on drawing from my from my main um, you know, stash for a while after I hit my fire number. And that's because we'll probably still have income coming in our home. I don't know if my wife is ready to retire. She tells me she's not, but we can't see the future. Maybe once we have all the money in the account, maybe she'll change her mind. I don't know. But I can tell you that I certainly plan on probably leaving my job. But, you know, again, I use the word probably. I, I don't know what's in the future, but I don't plan on touching my base for a while. At least I don't think I'll have to. Mm-hmm. And there's the fact that we are a very money savvy group. So we will be watching our portfolios like hawks, right? <laughs> yeah. If we notice that we are withdrawing too quickly, we will make changes. We're, we're very adept at that. We know how to make extra money if we need to, and we know how to cut back if we need to. So, you know, out of all the people out there, I think the fire community is the most well prepared to change course and fix things if the 4% rule or whatever withdrawal rate we use is becoming unsustainable. I, I think just because we're so aware of money, that in itself is part of the cushion that makes it's safe for us to retire at a young age. So I have a question. Shoot. Why are we, okay, I know why we are using this arbitrary 4% rule, but the question, you know, as related to what you said there, Ryan, is then why are we waiting to get to a number? You know, there's a lot of people that, or maybe it's a misconception that you go, well, I'll work my quote unquote corporate job, stashing the cash till I get to my number and then I can do what I want to do. When we've just discussed that the fact is you'll probably be doing something else, you know, that may be a low income or whatever it'll be, but it'll be something. You'll be able to generate some income if you wanted to. So why wait? Why not start? Why not throw out that 4% rule and say, I want to do what I want to do. Plant, build your life you want to live now and not worry so much. I think having, like I mentioned, having a runway saying, hey, yeah, I've got 10 years of expenses in the bank. I feel really comfortable with that. Now I can take the low-paying job. Now I can take. Now I can start my passion project. I can go work for the SPCA and work with animals. <laughs> and you know why? Why aren't more people doing that? I think that's the question I have: is why do we just wait to hit that number? Why not build the life we want to live now? Maybe it's because we don't have enough examples of it around us. You know, think about the people you're surrounded by. Who yeah. does that? You know, <laughs> a lot of times the people you know who do that. I don't know, they may not be the most financially savvy. They they kind of do it on a whim or because they have no choice or they just think it'll all work out. So, you know, the examples you have of people doing that generally aren't the most reliable, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it makes it a bit scary if you, it's the only examples you have are people that haven't thought far ahead into the future, you know, towards their retirement. They're just kind of living for today. And there's something to be said for that. You know, it's important to live for today, but there aren't that many examples of people who have balanced that, you know, thinking ahead for the future as well as living for now. That's why I'm a proponent of lean fire. I don't intend to keep, you know, slogging away just to hit that 25 times that FI benchmark of the 4% withdrawal rule. I'm going to go for lean fire. I'm going to know I've got that runway built in and then I'm going to, you know, continue to earn money doing things I want to do. That's just, for me, that's how I, how I'd like to plan it out. Of course, we all know things change. So yeah. Well, there, that's kind of like a, that fully funded lifestyle change that Jonathan talks about. I, I think it's slowly sipping coffee. One of their guests that they had on who, who coined that term where, you know, you have just enough to, to transition to a different career and you're, you're not FI, but you, you're close enough that you have some runway to transition to something else and earn some income and continue earning some, but doing it at, at doing something you love. Is this, is this show just become debunk, debunking the 4% rule or what's going on? I mean, <laughs> the, the 4% rule is the exact same thing as 
guessing and timing the, the stock market. In my opinion, I don't think they're really any. You're basically just crystal balling <laughs> what you think is going to happen. And if you think that investing in the stock market is always going to yield you this perfect picture, perfect return, um, you're deluding yourself and it fluctuates up and down. And when you're withdrawing from your portfolio, say if you are using the 4% rule and then the market takes a nosedive and it goes down 30%, do you stop or do you keep going? Okay, well, what if it goes back up 10%? Well, let's re-begin. And then it dives another 50%. It, you don't know. And I think that's the main reason the, to the question you posed a few minutes ago there, Money Mechanic. Okay, if you have people who are you're saying, like, why aren't you just living this life now? It's because they're scared. It's because there's fear to this decision. It's because when you have family and friends that might not completely understand that you have your financial together, they don't get it from from the outside looking in. They 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 think that you have to follow the status quo. You have to go with what is mainstream because if you do anything else, you're just risking everything you love and hold dear around you. And that's that's bad. And they they will fight you tooth and nail that you don't make such a rash and crazy decision. I mean, it's the same reason why we see like crazy comments and and whatnot on on YouTube videos or podcasts or blogs out there that people say like, oh, I feel so bad for this guy. He, he hates his job or I feel so bad for for this girl. I mean, like she has no idea what she's doing. She, it's going to blow up in her face 15 years from now kind of thing. While those statements may hold kernels of truth, everyone's just acting out of fear. That's my opinion. It's true. I, I agree. I And I would have to say even my husband would feel that way because I have encouraged him. I, I, I tell him all the time, you know, when he has bad days at work, you know, you, we have enough where we could coast for a while if you need to, you know, change careers or try something different. And there is that fear there that, you know, what if I can't find something else that I'm equally passionate about or that will earn me as much? And, you know, all the while we'll be withdrawing from our portfolio. So there is a lot of fear there. And again, it leads back for us that we don't have any examples in our life of anyone who's done that. So it's scary. It is scary. Yeah, we all have uh, spouses looking from the outside in, right? And I think that kind of more or less illustrates the point that I'm making. There's an appreciation of it, I think, from all our spouses, but there's also the, you know, you just kind of do your thing. Like we know where we are financially, but we're not just going to put a label on it kind of thing. I think it does have to directly correlate with fear that like, if we, if we really go into this, then I'm really going to lose my job or that I'm really going to begin divesting my portfolio. And I'm really trying to predict the future. That's the scary part about it. So I'm taking another tangent here since I've been listening to you there. No, I was just thinking about, Let's go back to our arbitrary number that we started with here of $1 million portfolio. There's a high likelihood that for those of us that have you know, worked hard and invested and accumulated that much money, that it's probably not just going to be, uh, let's just call it 100% in VGRO. Okay, let's use VGRO as an example because mm-hmm. 80% equities, 20% bonds. There's a high likelihood that you're going to have some other form of income producing investments. You might have a rental property. You might, you might have REITs. You might, there's other ways of generating passive income. You might own a business, right? You might buy into a business. So I think it's interesting to use that number as our rule, but the likelihood that if you had access to a million dollar portfolio, you'd probably put that money to work. The accountant always says on the FI garage that it's not an investment unless it's generating you a return. One of the things with the stock market is we, we can totally agree that it's volatile and we can't predict our sequence of returns in the future. But what I can predict is that if I had a million dollars, oh, I was totally going to quote a song line there, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you had a million dollars, you should... <laughs> sorry, that was bad. But I mean, one of my point is that you would have it working for you in, in a variety. You would diversify into different areas. You would be generating an income from that. And that's the king. That cash is king in retirement. It's cash flow. Mm-hmm. That's what people don't realize, right? It's not It's not drawing down your portfolio, which is what we talk about in the 4%. It's generating income from that portfolio. Absolutely. That's so true. That is the focus. And if you can supplement it, like you say, with other methods of earning income, whether it's passive or active, it kind of smashes that whole rule, right? Yeah, that's my point. Mm-hmm.
I totally agree. Uh, I was going to say something, but I totally forgot. <laughs> you were trying to remember the song line, weren't you? If I had a million dollars. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about, I was trying to remember a song line and who it would buy. And I was like, okay, it's Bare Naked Ladies. And I would buy an exotic pet or something. <laughs> like, a, like a llama or an emu. Yeah. Or an emu. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We can acapella that later. Um, you, no. you didn't think that we'd be referencing Bare Naked Ladies so soon on the Explore FI Canada podcast, did you? <laughs> I did not think so, but I'm also not uh, at all disappointed with that <laughs> that outcome. Actually, before we uh, continue any further, you did mention Lean FI, and if people uh, don't know what that is, can you just like, explain it really quickly? Like the difference between Lean and Fat Fat Fire? Yeah, absolutely. I well, <laughs> I may not give it the best definition, uh, but for me. Uh, I think what that is is let's let's just use an example so that we can throw some some arbitrary real numbers. How's that? Is that do those go together? I don't think sure. So, why not? It's our yeah. podcast. We make them go together. Yeah. <laughs> My arbitrary real numbers are, for example, lean fire to me would say uh, be living on thirty thousand dollars a year in Canada in today's money. So I figure. I could get my expenses down to 30k a year, but that really doesn't allow for a lot of discretionary spending. So that would be lean fire. So for that 30 times 25, I'd need 750k. That's pretty good math out of my head, but that's a fairly easy number. I'm gonna have to pull up my calculator <laughs> as we get more complicated into the uh, fires here. Yep. <laughs> so that let's just use that as the lean fire number, and then. Your 25 times at 40k is your one million dollar portfolio. So that's called that your fire number, your normal fire. I don't know what we're calling that. And then fat fire would be say I want to make the 60. I want to be able to withdraw 60k a year. So you've got a range there, right? So lean fire is is as it means, like the leanest you can be, the mo the minimum, the the most frugal you can be to live on all the way up, it's a bit of a continuum, right? All the way up to, well, I'd rather have 60K a year because I want to travel for four months of the year. So, you know, your 60 times that is uh, 1.25, right? Am I, I believe right there? so. I'm not calculating. <laughs> <laughs> 1. 1.5, sorry, 1.5. I told you I was going to need the calculator. That's why I have <laughs> the accountant on my other show. <laughs> so... Did I kind of cover that? Does that make sense? You guys should probably add on to what I said there, maybe uh, highlight what I missed. Yeah, I, I feel like that whole lean and fire and fat fire thing, it, it needs a whole discussion in itself because I kind of disagree with all the definitions out there because people set these dollar amounts to each of these you know forms of fire. And I think it's different for everyone. I think what's lean fire to one person would be like not even a consideration, you know, uh, what's what's fat fire to someone would be just fire to someone else. So I, I don't really agree with setting dollar amounts to it. I think it's sort of conceptual thing that differs for each person's situation. Uh, it depends on where you live, right? You know, 60,000 might be lean fire if you're living in the Bay Area in San Francisco, for instance, right? So I don't know, That that's my opinion. No, I completely agree with Chrissy. And uh, I'm also going to throw the calculator back at Money Mechanics face because I actually don't have uh, like the million dollar portfolio to me would be like an insanely fat fire to me. My ex my fixed expenses are under 20 grand a year. So for me, I guess I would I would look like lean fire, very lean fire to a lot of people because my fire number is just over 400,000. It is dependent on the person who has the expenses and where they live makes a huge, huge difference. Just like what Chrissy said, right? I mean, someone firing in San Francisco or Vancouver is going to have a radically different one from someone firing in Kitchener, Ontario. Mm -hmm. And it's also what's the size of your family and how is your health? Do you want to travel? There's a lot that's built into those assumptions. I think you bring up a great point there, Ryan, and that's kind of what we're trying to drill down to on the show, isn't it? The the nuance of where we live. Um, you made you made a great example there. Do you think you could pull a number out of the air for the at uh, the you know the median 
income that's required in Kitchener to have a, you know, the quote unquote normal lifestyle, I, you know, it'd be hard for me to pull that out for Victoria and Chrissy, I think it would be even more difficult mm-hmm. in Vancouver because we have, you know, there's, there's so much diversity across Canada and, and that's what we're really trying to get to is you're right. Your number's different depending on where you live. You, and of course you'll hear all about it in this fire movement too, is, you know, geographic arbitrage. Do you work in Vancouver till you hit your 4%, 25 times earning that you can use when you move to a small town in another province? Uh, Is that, a lot of people do plan that, right? Yeah, that's another way to sustain the 4% rule on a lower, uh, a smaller portfolio. There, There are just so many options. And I think, I, I think I'm seeing now why Mr. Money Mustache is so uh, optimistic about it because there are so many ways to supplement that 4% so that you're never actually withdrawing 4% because there's so many ways to get around it and earn extra income and have a safety margin. Yeah, important to realize that from a purely numbers point of view, we've all read the articles that prove the 4% does work or Darn close. There's one here I'm looking at. Canada was 3.96 was the safe max withdrawal rate, blah, 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 and how often it succeeded. And, and again, this is 50-50, right? So numerically, we can probably generalize and say, yeah, 4% will work. But when we talk realistically, those studies are, well, they're not done in a vacuum, but they don't take into account all these things that we were just talking about. You, you know, your family, where you live, other opportunities for income, the way you have that money invested, it's really it really gets deep. I mean, we've we're we're down the rabbit hole. <laughs> we are, but I I think what we're realizing is the four percent rule is pretty safe. You know, given what we know are, are options for us to protect ourselves and to not actually withdraw four percent or to cushion that 4% with other income sources. There are just so many ways to get around that, that I don't know, I, I feel like it's pretty safe. You know what I'd like you to do? Uh-uh. All you listeners out there, every time, to- yeah, no, this is important. Every time you read an article, it's going to be a bit of a game. Instead of saying, oh, hey, look, I found another article about the 4% rule. Read it and say, oh, I found another article about the 4% assumption. Mm-hmm. Right. If you if you change rule to assumption in every article you read, all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I'm okay with believing what the the study says now because it's an assumption. Yeah, awesome. That's a fantastic idea. It changes everything. Totally right. Well, you know what they say when you assume. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it makes an ass out of somebody. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm I'm comfortable being down here in the rabbit hole that is the 4% rule. I do think that calculating your expenses, you know, 25 times is a very, very good rule to go by. And I think it does indicate um, the power of wealth and the freedom and opportunity of choice it gives you. So I'm, I'm all about the 4% rule. I really am. Do we really have to save 25 times before we pull the trigger on any type of potential option? Or can we do that at twenty times or eighteen times? Uh, good question. <laughs> uh, that's it, that. I think that comes down to what I was mentioning earlier: is that it depends on how much runway you want for yourself. If you've got ten times your annual expenses, and you call that your fully funded lifestyle, so be it. You know that's that's your choice. Nobody says you need to have twenty five times or thirty times or. This is, it is all arbitrary. What, what do you want? Yeah. So question, if someone says, if someone goes onto the uh, Facebook group, the Choose a Fight Canada Facebook group and says, I got 15 times my expenses saved up, I'm going to fire. Would you believe them? I, I don't think that's fire. That, that's not fire because you're not financially independent. But I think you could say I'm transitioning into something else, right? Uh, as Jonathan says, it's a fully funded lifestyle change at that point, but I don't think you could say you're fire. No, well, because the, you know, the hard definition of fire is that is unfortunately using the word retirement, which has the connotation that you no longer do any form of work for income, right? Yeah, well, I, I, I should rephrase that. I think you can't even say you're FI, 
when you're 15 times because you're not, right? I, I, I don't think you're financially independent if you can't live off that portfolio for a reasonable length of what would be considered retirement, right? Whether you actually retire or not. I, if you can't coast on that portfolio for, let's say, 30 years, I don't think you could really say you're financially independent. That's my opinion. Yeah. Okay. Well, what if you're, what if you're 50 years old? You've got 15 years in front of you. And we don't, I agree with you that we don't take into account any uh, future benefits, but what if at 65, that's when your corporate pension or kicks in or your government pension kicks in and you say, well, Hey, I am fire at 50 with 15 times my, my expenses. Why couldn't you say that? 50 is still technically early retirement. Yeah, that's true. That that would work in that in that situation. It would work. <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to you know argue for the sake of arguing, but I, the point I'm trying to I'm trying to make is that there's so many different situations that it's hard to say. Well, yes, you're fire. No, you're not fire. I mean, who are we to who are we to judge? I think it's such a, a personal decision. We just need to use these assumptions and generalizations so that we have some form of framework to this community and to this movement, so that we can. It's funny because it's something that we can all agree on, yet we can all argue that we disagree with it. Exactly. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, what I'm really getting at here is I believe that there is a secret society or club <laughs> of people who have fired. And I want to know if I publicly state that I am 22 times my expenses and that I am fire, that the overlords of such group will go, eh. <laughs> We'll wait till he's 25 times and then we'll hand out the invite kind of thing. So I, w- I want to know, when am I going to be part of that membership? Hey, that's the, that's the IRP. Okay? <laughs> Don't mess with the IRP. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> right? The internet retirement police? Oh, yes. The retirement police are out in yeah. full swing. Well, I get <laughs> 22, the IRP is after you. You get a citation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to get something that shows up in your in your email. A fine. Well, do we have anything else to hash out about the 4% rule? I think we could keep going for a long time, but I don't know whether we... I think the difficult thing is I don't think we can ever come to a conclusion on this topic. I don't think so much a conclusion as we can just come to a general set of guidelines that the 4% rule probably has less at least in Canada this is a Canadian bias here but it has less to do with a drawdown strategy and more to do with calculating your expenses and kind of setting yourself this arbitrary number of I can make the fully funded lifestyle change and decision and basically choose to transition to whatever I want whether it be volunteer work or what have you and I I think some people might disagree and say no the math has to work no matter what And that could be the case if you will ever earn zero income for the rest of your life. But I just don't think that's the case. I I just, I don't see that happening for anybody who ever gets 25 times their expenses and is a member of the, you know, of the fire community at large. I just don't see that being reasonable. So on that assumption, if you're going to be making even if a little bit of money, once you're past uh, 25 times your expenses, I'd say you're a fire. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that. And through the course of this conversation, I'm starting to realize, I wonder if this 4% assumption is more of a psychological thing that gives us that safety, that emotional safety to know, okay, I've got it now. And if I surpass this, then I can do whatever I want, whether, you know, the 4% rule is fully sustainable or not, but it, it gives you that peace of mind to know that it's been studied and it's generally agreed to be safe. And you can jump off from there and feel confident that you're going to be okay. Whereas if you go under, you know, if you're withdrawing a higher rate than that, you you might not feel that safe because it it hasn't been tested and, you know, there's not as many um, examples of people doing that. So it's interesting how I'm realizing that it's, it's not really the, it's not all the math. It's partly, you know, the psychological side where it it gives you that peace in the back of your mind that it's probably going to be okay. I don't even really know what I can add to that. That was very well said, Chrissy. Yeah, I was actually, literally my two words were about to be well said, and then I heard you about to talk. 
Yeah, mic drop. <laughs> well, I'm, gl- I'm glad we talked about it because I, I wasn't sure because I'm not a math person and I, I, I'm not good at the technical details. So I was a bit actually nervous about this conversation, but I, I like the way it's gone. I, I think it's interesting. We went into all these tangents and we really teased out what is meaningful to us with a 4% rule. Exactly. And it is, as we, as we talked about it, it's going to be such a personal thing, dependent so much on, you know, your family, where you live, your expectations, and, and of course the unknown variables of the future. So we'll, we'll be coming back to this discussion again, because it does come up in, in other areas of the whole financial independence discussion. So I think it's good that we, we got into it a little bit and something good to refer to uh, in future discussions. I think from now on, though, we will call it the 4% assumption, and that should be the title of this <laughs> of this podcast. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I really like it, actually. The 4% assumption, 100%. So who's writing their first blog post on that? Do I get to write the blog post on that because I coined it? Or you guys? <laughs> <laughs> okay. you, you get a weak head start. I get a weak head start. Okay. <laughs> well, it might take me a week to edit this show, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> That's okay. My blog's a mess right now, anyways. <laughs> and I'm off for the summer. Right on. So, so you you get to take it, money mechanic. <laughs> right on. Well, that was a uh, an interesting discussion on Explore Fi Canada. I hope you listeners enjoyed our our banter and maybe hopefully learned something. Yeah, there's lots of articles out there. You'll find some on our show notes. And uh, yeah, dig into the four percent assumption and maybe figure out what it means to you. Don't, you don't necessarily have to use the hard numbers, but I think Chrissy made such a fantastic point there that it gives us you know, a benchmark and it gives us that comfort. And so much of saving and investing is behavioral, and it's important that we understand that. Definitely. And I think um, you know, if people want to continue the conversation, like post a thread on the Facebook group that I mentioned before, or find a way to contact us you know, like over Twitter or what have you. Like, I don't think the conversation just ends with us and that we are the grand deciders of this. You know, if there's something we're overlooking or missing, we want to hear from you. Mm-hmm. That's how we'll learn too. And that's partly why we do our podcasting and blogging. It's because we take a lot from our audience and we learn from you too. Thanks for listening. You can find all our show notes at explorifycanada.ca. Do you like what you're hearing? Help us grow by sharing the show with friends and family. Please subscribe and leave us a comment or review on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us at our own blogs, figarage.ca, canadianfire.ca, or eatsleepbreathefy.com. Our music today was provided by Purple Planet. We'll be back with another episode soon. We'll talk then.